0: Well, good morning, Park. Uh, This morning is Palm Sunday. It's the start of what we call Passion Week. Uh, The term passion comes from the Latin phrase, uh, a Latin phrase, which just simply means suffering. It's the week where, as a church, we look back on Jesus Christ, His life, His death, His resurrection, and the week when He came into Jerusalem and suffered on our behalf. And the week begins this Sunday in what is typically called Palm Sunday, Sunday. And today we're going to be going through Luke chapter 19 and we're going to look at the Palm Sunday text where we read about Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem to begin his week of suffering. Now as I begin, as you open up your Bibles to Luke 19, I want to pray for our time in the word this morning. Heavenly Father, as we open your word, we ask God that you would do a powerful work among us. As we're spread out across the city, unable to gather together as an assembly, as a body, together in one room. We look forward to that day when we can gather again as one body and celebrate together. But until that day, as we're spread out across the city, God, we look to your word. We proclaim that Jesus is our King and we ask, Holy Spirit, that you illuminate our hearts, illuminate our minds, make us able to hear from you this morning, to worship you well. We ask this in Jesus' holy name Amen. Now as I just prayed, this Palm Sunday is unique. I was talking with a friend this week and was being reminded that frankly in the history of the world, I, I, I don't think there's ever been a Sunday since the resurrection of Jesus Christ where around the globe churches have been unable to meet and gather and celebrate the resurrection or in our case this morning, celebrate Palm Sunday together. I think this is a first in the history of the church. Uh, and while there is something to lament in that, and I, and I want to confess right up front that there is something very real to lament in that, not being able to meet together is, is difficult. Uh, I feel the, the pressure of that and the pain in my own life of desiring to meet together and yet being unable to do, to do to do that. There is something real to lament, and I've been constantly brought to the Psalms in this season where... I've gone to the lament psalms and realized that there's something very disorienting about this season. Allowing the words of the psalms to minister to my my soul, it's been good. It's been a good season for me to really experience some of that language that's in the psalms and let that minister to my soul. On the one hand, there's a true sense of lament that this Palm Sunday we cannot gather together. But on another hand, there is a sense of the reality that despite the trial we're in, Despite the reality of not being able to gather together, despite the reality of the pains of a world in crisis right now, Jesus is King. And in that place, we rest as a church. In that place, we open up the Scriptures this morning and we we long to be ministered to by the words of God, be ministered to by the power of the Holy Spirit, and allow God to actually change something about our hearts this morning. Jesus sits on His throne. And in the midst of our lamenting, we can also rejoice at that reality. Now, Palm Sunday is one of those passages in the Scriptures in the New Testament uh, that appears in all four of the gospel accounts of Jesus' life. Some passages, you know, only appear in Matthew or only appear in Mark. This account of Jesus entering into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday appears in all four of the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, that signifies something to us. It tells us that the early church realized that this moment in Jesus' life was particularly important. All four gospel writers made sure that they included it in their retelling, in their telling of history. And not only was it important to them, but it was important for their understanding of who Jesus was and their identity as followers of Christ. It was important to the early church. Let's remind ourselves a little bit of context as we jump into Luke chapter 19. We're getting towards the tail end of this gospel account, this historical record of the life of Jesus. Luke, the guy who wrote this, was an actual historian, and he wrote the gospel of Luke with a lot of details that would only be found in a historian's writing. And up to this point, what we've learned about Jesus is that he was this remarkable miracle worker who who was traveling the, the land of Israel doing things that no one had ever done before. He taught like no teacher had ever taught. He performed miracles. And people had this incredible insight into God. Whenever Jesus went, it seemed like he left the imprint of God on the crowds. And the crowds didn't really know what to do with him. And people had very mixed feelings about who he was. The religious leaders of his day wanted him dead. As we read through the accounts, we we realize that Jesus was stirring the pot and he was challenging the status quo of his day. And he was challenging the very fabric of what the religious leaders had claimed true religion was for the day. And because of that, they knew he was a threat to the establishment. But Jesus was going back to the Word of God, and he was simply trying to bring us back to what God had always originally intended. And so the religious leaders wanted to find a way to get rid of Jesus. The crowds, on the other hand, didn't know what to do with him. The crowds had mixed feelings. On the one hand, he was a prophet. He spoke like no one had ever spoke, and he taught like no one had ever taught. But he went further than other prophets. Where other prophets always pointed towards God, Jesus took on qualities that only God could have. Jesus, throughout the Gospel accounts, claimed to have the authority to forgive sin. In in those days, that would have been heretical if it were not true. Jesus took on the name of God upon Himself, calling Himself, I Am. And so throughout the life of Jesus, the crowds as well don't quite know what category to fit Jesus into. Is He a prophet, or is He something else? Of course, there was one other category. There was one other category besides just prophet that Jesus potentially could fit into. You see, all through the Jewish Scriptures, that's the Old Testament, all through the entire Jewish Bible that they had in that day, there was one category for an anointed one, a Messiah, a Savior, someone who would come one day to set things right. It was reserved for just one person, that person that they called the Prince of Peace. The one who would come to reverse sin, the one who would come to set things back, to heal men's hearts, and they knew that only one person could ever lay claim to that category. Could Jesus be that one? Could he be the Prince of Peace? Well, Palm Sunday is Jesus and his disciples setting the record straight on exactly who Jesus claimed to be. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to open up to Luke chapter 19, and I'm going to begin the story in verse 28. We read this, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and to Bethany, the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here." If anyone asks you why you're untying it, you shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And Throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. Now pause the story right there. It begins this way, it says, And when Jesus had said these things... Jesus has just got done teaching through parable form a very important lesson on the kingdom of God and particularly calling out in that parable the religious leaders and saying you're not recognizing what's taking place right in front of your very own eyes. And then it says that Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now geographically, if you recall... Jerusalem is a city that's literally on a hill, so no matter what angle you're coming to Jerusalem from, you always walk up to Jerusalem. And there's this little detail, some of the other gospel writers actually share a little bit more about this detail, but it tells us, the text tells us, that on his way he stopped and he drew near to two towns, one called Bethany and another called Bethpage. Now why is this an important detail? Well, for starters, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were there. The other Gospel writers tell us that. And Jesus had friends in that place, and He had done much ministry in those towns. But also, Bethany. The name Bethany, that that town is called, Bethany, it's a Hebrew term, uh, bayat ani. It literally means the house of the poor, the house of the needy. It's interesting that on the way that Jesus, King Jesus goes into Jerusalem, He makes sure He stops in that place that He had done much ministry. A place called the house of the poor. Jesus was constantly associating Himself with those who most kings wouldn't associate with. Kings like Caesar didn't go to Bethany. They didn't go to the house of the poor. Kings like Caesar, kings like most people expected a king to be, wouldn't go and minister to the weak or to the needy or to the the morally outcast or the sick. It'd stay in their high towers. But that wasn't King Jesus. King Jesus was an unlikely king. Perhaps we might say an unexpected king. You always found Jesus with those who others considered the outcast. He was always drawing near to the lepers. He was always drawing near to the demon-possessed. He was always drawing near to the sick to the poor, to the outcast. Jesus was a humble king and He he made sure He stopped in the house of the poor on the way to His final week of suffering. Here, the start of the Passion Week that would ultimately lead to His death and resurrection. Jesus stops in Bethany, the house of the poor. And then He goes up to the Mount of Olives. Now, an interesting place for Jesus to begin this week is on this Mount of Olives. Historically, this Particular mountain located just outside Jerusalem. You can go there today, and and the mount is this beautiful hill that looks out over all the city of Jerusalem, and from it you can see as far as the eye can see the land of Israel. But Jesus, being well steeped in biblical history and, and frankly being God over all creation, God over history, he knew when he stood on that mountain that he was standing in a place that had a lot of moments that had happened throughout biblical history. It was David who, when fleeing from his son Absalom, crawled up the Mount of Olives, sobbing that his own son would betray him. So you imagine Jesus with his disciples stopping at the start of this Passion Week on the top of the Mount of Olives, and you can just imagine what's going through Jesus' mind as he's standing there remembering when David had once crawled up that hill, sobbing, and you can just imagine Jesus looking out over all time past, An all-time future and recognizing the importance of that one place, the Mount of Olives. He commands his disciples. He says, go into the town and and go grab a colt. And he tells them exactly what will happen. Now, what's with this colt? Why is there so many verses in this story of Jesus' coming into the city of Jerusalem given to a peculiar colt? Well, the colt plays a very important role. You notice in the text that Jesus says, go ahead of me, grab this colt, and then he literally says exactly what's going to happen. If anyone tells you what are you doing with this, you simply say the Lord has need of it. The disciples go into the town, they grab the colt, and someone asks them, what what are you doing with my colt? And the disciples say, the Lord has need of it. It happened just as Jesus said. Now what's significant about this? Well, Luke doesn't give us the background on this. He almost assumes that we would read into the text what was meant by all of this. But the the gospel writer Matthew, in Matthew 21, verses 4 to 5, when he tells this story, he actually highlights the significance of this cult for us. Let me read to you from Matthew. Matthew says this, This took place to fulfill what was spoken of by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a beast of burden. When Jesus sends his disciples to get this cult, he is looking backwards in history to the letter of Zechariah that was written way, way before Jesus actually lived. Hundreds of years prior, Zechariah had written a prophecy, and the prophecy had said that when the Anointed One comes, when the King comes, one of the ways you'll spot him is that he's going to come humbly on a donkey On a colt. Jesus is literally stepping into prophecy and fulfilling it in this moment. Everyone would expect a king to come in a different way. Everyone would expect a king to come with a military, a king to come in power and pomp and prestige. But when the anointed one would come, when the king would come, the king who God had foretold from long before, whom the prophets spoke of, when that one would come, the way you'd recognize it, people of God, Is He'd be seated on a donkey, on a colt, a beast of burden. Jesus sends His disciples ahead to get the colt, and you notice in the text, it tells us that the disciples set Jesus upon this colt. The disciples are part of this. They're recognizing what's taking place, and they're making a statement. They're reaching back into the prophets of the Old Testament. They're seating Jesus on a colt, and then they're beginning their walk into the city of Jerusalem. Jesus is fulfilling prophecies that were written hundreds of years prior. Now look at how the crowds respond. Now keep in mind, this is taking place during one of the annual festivals in Israel. This whole scene is taking place as crowds, perhaps hundreds of thousands of people are marching into Jerusalem. There's people everywhere and they're there for one of their annual celebrations. And we read that as as Jesus is set on this colt on the Mount of Olives, and he begins to walk into Jerusalem. His disciples and the crowds gather around him, and they begin to recognize what's taking place. They're seeing with their own eyes prophecies being fulfilled. Pick up with me again in verse 36. We read this, And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road, as he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. Keep, see what he's saying there. For all the mighty works they'd seen. They've looked back on Jesus' life. They've seen the miracles. They've seen what he's done. They've seen the teaching. And now they're seeing the fulfillment of Zechariah in front of their eyes and they start crying out, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The crowds of these Jewish men and women who knew their Old Testament, knew the promises of Scripture, are recognizing what's happening in front of them. And again, they reach out. The words they say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're not just shouting random things here. They're reaching back into Psalm 118. Psalm 118, verse 26, reads directly, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Again, that's a messianic prophecy written hundreds of years before Jesus talking about the moment when the Messiah, the Savior, would come. They reach back and they start singing that song to Jesus. And then they add this peculiar language. They say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now where did that come from? That's not from Psalm 118. Well, in part, it's from pulling from different places in the Old Testament, you might be able to say that. If you look backwards in Luke chapter 2, in the beginning of this book that we're reading right now, it's actually the angels who first said something similar to this. The angels who were there at the birth of Jesus, we find them in Luke chapter 2 verse 14 saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. And so in one sense, as the disciples are singing these praises to Jesus, recognizing what's happening, when they're saying, peace in heaven and glory in the highest, in a way they're they're recognizing what the angels already knew back in Luke chapter 2. You see, all of heaven, all the angelic beings that exist, they all knew at the start exactly who Jesus was. It took us humans a little bit of time to figure it out. But here, as he's coming down, the people have caught up to what the angels already knew. But then he says, peace in heaven. Peace in heaven. The angels didn't say that. What does it mean, peace in heaven? You know, the Bible's teaching on this is very interesting, and I might even say countercultural. Peace in heaven. Most people might say, what does peace in heaven mean? Isn't there already peace in heaven? How is Jesus walking on a cult or, or sitting on a cult, walking into Jerusalem, considered bringing about peace in heaven? Let me see if I can explain it this way. We live in a world that's full of brokenness. I think that's easy to say in this day. From cancer to COVID-19, from murder to adultery, from earthquakes to tsunamis, from poverty to depression. We live in a world that is full of brokenness. Something has caused there to be a sense of brokenness, not only in the physical world that we experience, but inside of our own hearts as well. Every person recognizes that there, there is a longing in our hearts for the world to be different than it actually is. To live in a place where there isn't brokenness, where there isn't pandemic, where there isn't depression. We long for something more, and yet we inhabit this world where there's brokenness, physical brokenness, mental brokenness. But underneath all of that, there's also another layer of brokenness which every human experiences, and that's spiritual brokenness. The Bible traces the origins of all of this brokenness physical, mental, spiritual all of it to humanity's rejection of God. So if we want to know where this brokenness come from, where did it come from, how did we get into a place where the world is operating the way it's operating today? We only need to look to one place. It, It started with our rebellion and rejection of God. We live in a world of destruction as a result of that. And not only the physical destruction that we see, but the destruction of our relationship with God. That we were made for something more than we naturally experience by virtue of just being born into this world. We were made for a thriving relationship with a God who knows us and loves us. And yet, because of our rebellion to God, that's been broken. It's almost as if there's a war between us and the heavens, there's a war between us and the way things ought to be, between us and God. And to fix this broken world, it's going to take more than a vaccine. To fix this broken world is going to take far more than any momentary vaccine fixing some momentary sickness. A vaccine can fix the body for a moment, but it cannot fix your relationship with God. And your relationship with God is the most important thing about you, everything else is secondary. The human soul was made for one thing above every other thing and that was a thriving relationship with the God who knows you and knows everything about you. And until that gets fixed, there is no full healing to be had. And to anybody who's listening, I want to make sure we capture what these disciples are saying when they're saying that Jesus came to bring peace in heaven. We ought to be as concerned, hear this clearly, we ought to be as concerned about the status of our soul before a holy God as we are about our health in the midst of COVID-19. Until your relationship with God is healed, there is no peace between you and a holy God, between you and heaven. But the good news in the midst of this, the good news in the midst of this is that God has done something to actually bring peace where there was once war. That while the deepest brokenness that any of us can experience is the rift between us and a holy God, God's done something to actually heal the root cause of everything we experience in this world. What is it that He's done? What's this healing that we're actually celebrating on Palm Sunday? And what does Jesus have to do with it? Well, everything. There's another prophecy in the Old Testament. And we've talked about Zechariah, we've talked about Psalm 118. I want to draw our attention for just a moment to the book of Daniel. This is one of the most fascinating prophecies in the Old Testament, at least in my mind. And I love studying and looking into these types of things. A very important prophecy. Daniel lived about 550 years before Jesus. About 550 years before Jesus. Daniel was a prophet who, during the time when the Jews were held in captivity in Babylon, he wrote a number of prophecies about what would take place in the future after his life. Now, I want to just draw a word of caution here. What I'm about to share has been debated by scholars over and over for literally centuries as they have tried to pinpoint some of the dates from this prophecy. And I want to share with you what we read when we look into Daniel. Daniel chapter 9 verse 24. I'm going to put this up and I'm going to try to explain it for us. Daniel says this, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression." To put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity. To bring in everlasting righteousness. To seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. Now pause there. He keeps going, but let me pause for just a moment. What in the world is he saying? He starts off by saying there is a time frame that we can measure. And when we measure that time frame, something, an event is going to happen. And what's it going to do? Well, let's read it. He says he's going to put an end to sin. God's going to put an end to the rebellion of the human heart to sin. One day that's going to happen. God's going to atone for iniquity. What that means is that God is going to find a way to offer forgiveness, to actually make up for and and find a way for your guilt before a holy God to be forgiven. He's going to atone for iniquity. He's going to bring an everlasting righteousness the right standing before God that we were actually made for but that none of us can have because of our rebellion to God, one day in a set time period, God's going to have a moment in history when He's going to take care of it and usher in an entire new age. Now Daniel goes further. Now how are we going to know when that time comes? Daniel says this, verse 25, "...know therefore and understand." that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one. Now, again, this is prophetic literature, so read this with me. From the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off And shall have nothing. Now, if that looks difficult to interpret, let me see if I can help a little bit. It talks of an anointed one. An anointed one is gonna come at a certain time. The Hebrew word there is Mashiach, Messiah. It's where we get our term Messiah or Savior from. God's plan from the very beginning was to fix this world by first fixing the human heart. And until we fix the human heart, no other solution or fix that we provide is ever going to mean anything. And God's plan was always to send one person. He was going to send one person, and when that one person came, He was going to fix the problem of the broken human heart, the rift that was made between God and humanity because of our rebellion to Him. And that person would be called the Messiah. Now when would He come? Look at, his, at Daniel's words. If you can put up the, the slide here that shows... Go to the next slide. He says that from the going forward from the going forward when the decree to rebuild Jerusalem now that is an actual moment in history that we know when that took place so we can start measuring because Daniel's giving us the time frame we can actually start measuring when did that take place In the book of Nehemiah we read that that took place under king Artaxerxes who was the leader of the Persian empire We know when when his uh, reign began, and we can actually, now this is where there's some debate over the exact year and the exact month, but many scholars pinpoint the day that that decree was written to March 5th, 444 B.C. Isn't that amazing? Daniel looking forward saying, one day Jerusalem's going to be rebuilt. And then it happened on a very particular day And then he says, from the issuing of that decree, which took place in March 5th, 444 B.C., there will be seven weeks. Now that word weeks, it means seven sets of seven. The way to interpret that is that there's going to be seven seven seven-year periods. That's 49 years. So if you look up here, starting in March 5th, 444 B.C., there's going to be 49 years for the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Guess what? It happened just as Daniel said it would happen in the future. Again, Daniel's writing 550 years before Christ. And then he goes on, he says there will be another 62 sets of seven. That's another 434 years. Now that's a startling prophecy because he's pinpointing a very specific date. Daniel's saying that from March 5th, 444 B.C., which was a future date for him, there would be a total of 483 years or precisely 173,880 days. Now before I tell you what date that is, The Bible spoke with clarity about what to look for when God sent his anointed one so that we wouldn't miss it. He said he's going to be seated humbly on a colt. Don't miss it. He's going to enter into Jerusalem and they're going to sing these psalms about him when he comes. So don't miss him. Have your eyes open. This is what you got to be looking for. Now, when you do the math, from March 5th, 444 B.C., and you add 173,880 days according to the old calendar, Calendar, this is the date that you get. Look with me. April 6, 32 A.D., which is what most scholars say is the exact day of the first Palm Sunday when Jesus Christ sat on a colt and rode into Jerusalem proclaiming Himself to be King. Now, if your heart Is not beaten fast like mine's beaten right now. I don't know if you actually heard what I just shared. 550 years prior to Jesus sitting on a colt and walking into Jerusalem, Daniel said, One day the Messiah is going to come who's going to bring a peace between heaven and humanity, who's going to atone for sin, and this is the date it's going to happen. And it happened exactly as he said it would. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that Sunday, the first week of his Passion Week. Jerusalem and, and, and the people of God are looking at it and they're saying, it's taking place. Now what did they miss? Now, now they missed something, right? Because Daniel had something else to say. Daniel said he's going to atone for iniquity and if you read the end of that prophecy, what did Daniel say? And then he will be cut off. The Messiah, the Savior, would have a quick end to His life after He came to Jerusalem. See, the, the crowds are celebrating right now because they, they had this, this missed expectation. On the one sense, they're looking to Jesus and they're saying, He's the King. We're excited. And what they're expecting of Jesus is for Him to rule in some kind of political, military, physical kingdom that they could feel with their hands and touch. But Jesus was an unexpected King, not because... He hadn't written about it in the prophecies. Daniel told them he was going to be cut off. Isaiah told them that he would be crucified. Everything was written. But because they weren't reading their Old Testament with enough clarity, Jesus comes in and they're singing the songs of, Here Comes the King, and they're missing the reality that this is the beginning of his suffering. This king is not like any other king, he came to die. This moment, as they're all celebrating, and only a few more days from this moment, many of these same disciples would be running and cowering in fear as the one who they proclaimed as the Messiah on that morning was being crucified. Not understanding that it was only through Jesus' death and resurrection that God had foretold through His prophets long ago that there could be forgiveness of sin. Jesus' death on a cross was the just penalty for sin before a holy God. Through Jesus Christ, it is only through Jesus Christ that sinful men like us, sinful men and women like us, could ever stand before a holy God. Because it's through His blood that is shed for the forgiveness of sin that we can actually have our sin atoned for, as Daniel said. And that we don't just have our, our, our standing before God changed, our sins forgiven. But we receive a new heart and we actually get to live for what God made us for and live into the full life. From the beginning of time itself, God wrote everything we would ever need to know in advance so that we wouldn't miss the King when He came. And to all those who are listening, I tell you, the Anointed One has come. The Savior that can actually heal the root problem of every issue we face in this world He's come. He's dealt with the problem of the human heart. And if you will receive Him by faith, by saying in your heart and by proclaiming it with your mouth that you believe that God sent Jesus to die on a cross on your behalf, The promises of Scripture are that God literally transforms your heart from the inside out. He changes your longings where once God might have seen like the eternal killjoy, He becomes the eternal light of your heart where all you want is to live for Him. He changes you from the inside out and He gives you a joy that you wouldn't expect. But you've got to receive Jesus by faith. You must turn from your old way and say, I'm going to trust in Him Now as I close, I want us to look at what happens at the end of this passage, this first Palm Sunday. There's another group that's standing there, and the Pharisees, we read of them in verse 38, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. (laughs) The Pharisees are there, and, and they just don't want to have any of it. They know the Old Testament. They, they were the ones that should have seen this, but their hearts were so stubborn because they didn't want to change from the grid that they had decided to live their life by. They refused to see what was so obviously in front of them. Now I want to tell you, if you, can, if you can look at what I just shared with you and you can say, I don't, I'm not interested at all. I don't know what else someone can tell you to get you to open your eyes and look at Jesus and who he claimed to be. The King has come. God has made a way for your heart to be filled the way it was always meant to be filled, not by the fleeting pleasures of this world that are taken away in the flick of your fingers when a, a pandemic comes, but He's made a way for you to have eternal, lasting satisfaction that does not go away with the trial that tomorrow brings in your life, and it's only through Jesus. Do not be so stubborn that you will not look into the claims of scriptures the claims of who Jesus claimed He was. Now, I don't know exactly what God is doing specifically in this moment of ours during COVID-19. But I know this. If in this moment you are not considering the deeper things of your soul and the reality of who Jesus says He is and what God has spoken about your need of a Savior, if this moment of ours isn't making you consider those things at a new level, Again, I don't know if anything will. This is a moment for the world to pause, to look to Jesus, and to say, you are the King, and only you can bring about a peace in this place. To the Christians, I look at you right now, and I want you to prepare for this Passion Week ahead of you. As we sit isolated from each other, and we're unable to gather together as a church, this ought to be one of the most impactful weeks of your life thus far. As you pause, you open your scriptures, and you make intentional time to reflect and to sit in worship of our unexpected King. Let me pray. Father, we love you. I pray that what was shared this morning would resonate in many people's hearts. I pray that many who are far from you this morning are having their troubled hearts stirred by the King of Kings that you would meet them where they're at, that you would fill their heart with joy even before you fill their mind with understanding. God, comfort us in our trial, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.